We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean from Arsenal Vision Dakota UK. And in today's show, Paul and Tim will be discussing the 3 3 draw, the crazy 3 3 draw away to Bournemouth in the Premier League. Uh, how many times have you seen your team 3 0 down away from home, come back and draw and gain a point on the leaders at the top of the league, yet still feel rather deflated? Yeah, not many times, I would say. And that's certainly one of the feelings I'm feeling now. And I know many Arsenal fans are feeling the same way. As great a comeback as it was, it should have been more. I mean, a game, honestly, we could have lost quite easily, but I don't know. We needed to win that game. But it is what it is. We march on again and um, plenty to discuss. So enjoy the podcast. Back after pressing the FA Cup. Yeah, see you then. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision Podcast. This is Paul Posnan standing in for Elliot, who is stranded at an airport at this stage. Maybe that's for the best, given the uh, last encounter we had. But no slouch. Joining us in his stead is Tim Stillman. Uh, Welcome, Tim. Hello there. So, I guess the first thing to mention is that Elliot wants everybody to know he's seething. Uh, (laughs) But he's, I think he's mainly seething about the Bournemouth game. So uh, we're gonna we got two games to cover here: the Palace game, the Bournemouth game. We'll co- we'll give Bournemouth a bit more welly. So we'll save Elliot's seething for a little bit here and try to anticipate what he might seethe about. Shouldn't be too hard to guess. But uh, Tim, let's start with the Palace game. I mean, it's, mm. first a philosophical question: How different would we feel if the games had been played 
in the opposite order. Pro- I guess probably not that much difference at the end of the day, but a bit, I would think. Yeah, probably not. I think, you know, we'd have, we'd have had a lot of um, the anger we had in the wake of the Bournemouth game. We'd have just had it, you know, two days earlier, I suppose. Earlier, yeah. yeah, and I, I suppose there was only one day between the games, so that, that might have diluted it a little bit. Yeah. Albeit, I think that um, going 3-0 down at home to Crystal Palace... <laughs> might have been quite interesting in terms yeah. of what that would have done for people's stress levels. And I think as well, when there's more Arsenal fans in the stadium, that that does create a bit more of a maelstrom. Obviously, there's more expectation on you at home. But a lot of that, I think, is also created by the fact that your own supporters are there and everyone can hear what they're saying and what they're shouting. And, you know, that that can feed into, you know, the overall atmosphere um, after a game shall we say whereas you know when we're 3-0 down to Bournemouth on Tuesday night there's only 15 1600 of us there um, yeah. and you know mo- most of those people were quite angry um, at varying points with uh, varying levels of, of justification um, sure. but I, I don't think it would be that different albeit as well I think the Allardyce factor might play into things a bit there in terms of, I don't, I, nobody, no Arsenal fan enjoys being three 0 down. But being three 0 down to an Allardyce team and not beating them with his particular brand of smug um, <laughs> would have been quite difficult to take. Compared to Eddie Howe, who is kind of more, you know, well liked and well respected. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, all right, let's talk about the Palace game. Um, I guess some interesting aspects to the lineup, if I can remember what they were. So we'd uh, we'd um, we'd we'd Gabriel still in defence, mm. uh, and we had a midfield of uh, Chaka and El Neni before he headed off for that stupid African Cup of Nations that's on every year. Just when you're getting going, can't can't fucking believe it. Um, and uh, up front, what was our front three again? We do, we had it Perez. Was Iwobi, yeah. uh, no, Perez. Uh, oh, what did Perez start? It was Giroud, Alexis, and Perez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perez. And it won't be played. It won't be played in the number ten role. That's yeah. right. And uh, there was a lot of talk before the game because of how Arsenal sent it out, and I thought this would be very attractive to play Alexis at the ten spot. Uh, yeah, I've been itching to see him play from there. I mean, he kind of often kind of does that anyway. But anyway, I thought that would be an interesting lineup. But it was to be a Wobie. Um, yeah, and I guess overall you could say we played really, really well. Um, but you could probably say Palace played really, really poorly and gave us the yeah. space to play well. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of um, I kind of expected a fairly similar game to West. Brom, but with the caveat that Palace have a lot more going forward than West Brom. West Brom really only have Rondon, um, and they made it quite clear that they weren't even that interested in, in giving him any kind of service. Whereas Palace, you know, have got Andros Townsend, they've got Zaha, they've got Ben Teke up front, um, Jason Punchin. You know, Jason Punchin played central midfield. It was quite an adventurous lineup, mm. um, and so there's a, there was a lot of potential for Palace there on the counter attack, but. I mean, really, Zaha was was really below par, didn't look that interested. Um, ditto Andros Townsend, who's a very, very hit-and-miss kind of player anyway. Um, 
and you know punching in central midfield that with with Kabai, you know that that was quite. I know I know Kabai plays a slightly more withdrawn role, but he's still, to all intents and purposes, you'd associate him more with the attacking elements of the game than the defensive elements. So it was a surprisingly not quite gun ho, but surprisingly enterprising lineup from Palace actually, and. Um, yeah, it was it was clear. I think what happens at this time of year, and you can see it with the top six results, Christmas starts to separate the wheat from the chaff, really. And what happens, I think, is teams that are slightly lower in the league, they know they haven't got the resources to go flat out for, you know, four games in ten days. And they kind of pick and choose a little bit. And that's why you start to see the separation from the top teams, because the top teams have got the squads to rotate in the first place and then... You know, some teams that you know they'll come to us on New Year's Day, or they'll go to Man City on New Year's Day, and a lot of them will just think, you know what, we 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 were another game in two days where we've got a much better chance of getting points. So they kind of, even if subconsciously, in fact, I think it's quite conscious at times, but at least subconsciously, um, you kind of get that 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 factor comes into it and as soon as we went 2-0 up as well against Palace I just uh, after that first goal you know I, I kind of said to the guys I sit with the second one definitely kills this and not apprehensive about a comeback because teams don't do that at this time of year they will not mm. once they're 2-0 down they will not kill themselves for a point that they probably won't get when yeah. they've got another game in 48 hours So, and, and that's why I think New Year's Day football is the worst. It produces the worst games anyway, um, and it should be sacked off <laughs> completely. Really, I think they're they're terrible. I can't ever remember seeing a decent game on New Year's Day. Quite the opposite. They're always terrible. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and all around the league, not just Arsenal, because you get very very predictable results for for those exact reasons. And I felt this was a bit like that. And I, I felt as well that. If we'd wanted to, we probably could have put Palace to the sword by three or four goals. But obviously, you know, we're not going to do that either for the same reasons. So these games do tend to die a bit of a death in the last 20, 25 minutes. And mm. I think it was clear that that happened on this occasion as well. Yeah. I mean, the lads did do their best to entertain you, Tim. Oh, oh definitely. <laughs> I mean... I'm sure we'll talk about the goal. Right? Ah, ah, screw it. Let's talk about it now. I mean, th- mm. I mean, there were two, two contrasting goals, but I enjoyed them both uh, fairly immensely. I, I, mm. I'm sure you'll have something to say on on the Iwobi goal, and the, you know, it was actually pretty nice build up to two. Both of them mm. had pretty good build up. Uh, beyond that, mm. I mean, there were, like you say, there were a couple of other chances, uh, like really good chances. There was. There was uh, Alexis dancing around in front of goal uh, uh, at one stage where he had it at its mercy for the probably the second game in a row. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the uh, the uh, the Scorpion goal, um, yeah. as it's termed. Um, interestingly, he gets a little st- stick in the next game for a celebration of it. But I mean, it was like so. The interesting thing was when interviewed on it, he said, uh, you, you know, it was very lucky, which, of course, it was. But one yeah. of the things that caught my attention with it is not only does he look at the ball going onto his foot, he then whips his head around. Immediately, he's yeah. made contact. It might have been might have been a lot, a lot of luck. But 
as soon as he, yeah, as soon as he made contact, I think he knew what he'd done at that instant before the ball hit mm. the net because he l- swings his head round and looks straight ahead to maybe where he wanted to go, but it was almost as if his, it was like, I want to see how this plays out. He looks right mm. in that spot there. but Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, that's a, he might not be able to do that if he attempts it another 10 times, but it was, it was absolutely deliberate. It was absolutely what he intended. Um, and it's, it's a great piece of control as well because he's off balance. You know, he can't even see the ball when he strikes it. That's that's a a blind strike, as it were. You know, you're putting a lot of trust into, and and you can look really stupid <laughs> trying something like that. You can easily miss the ball completely. It can go miles over, and everyone goes, "Oh my god, what are you doing?" Yeah. Um, so there's there's a sense of bravery in it as well. Um, which you know a lot a lot of the best strikers are like that. They're basically they're not afraid to look stupid, um, potentially. Um, and 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 I think you know that the goal's almost in two parts really because you've got that wonderful quick build up which you don't see enough of with Arsenal. Um, and actually, it's one of the things that you kind of think that Arsenal are less likely to do with Giroud playing. Um, but having made that that really nice flick, which sets the move in motion on the halfway line, he he gets there really quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, he shows I think we've that talked mobility. Little, yeah, we've talked a little bit before about his his first and second gear are kind of not very quick, but mm. uh, and, and maybe he's not that fast. He just runs full pelt, and he mm. does it for eighty yards. Um, and like you say, he he plays that little flick. So when you're talking about courage. Uh, and an appetite. I mean, the guy, as soon as he plays that flick, he's like, fuck it. Uh, you know, oh, shit, I'm the center forward. I'm the guy who needs to get into the box and get on the receiving end of this. This looks interesting. And he just pelts up the pitch. So, I mean, fair, fair dues to the man. The flick, the run, the full commitment, as you said. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing at the end of the day, being the striker when the ball's coming in. I, I played striker a little bit and I can remember shitting myself when the ball mm. comes in because you know it's on you. You're about, like yeah. you said, you're better look like a complete fucking idiot and not just because you missed a, a, a scorpion kick. It can just be a volley and anything. I mean, the adrenaline, it, it's great when you start your run. As you get towards the end of your run, you think you, you suddenly realized, oh my God, it's I've about to me. This. Yeah. <laughs> every, like all eyes are on me. Yeah. And, you know, this is like the end of the move coming up one way or another. Yeah. And, you know, after I do this, everything resets again one way or another. So, you know, those, those, those kind of things linger. And I think, I suppose one of the things about Giroud as well, that we're probably all guilty of not playing up enough. Um, and certainly outside the Arsenal fan base is, you know, those, he's, he's got lovely, uh, what I'd describe as soft feet. And actually, because he's, you know, he's big and he's strong and he scores headers and he, he basically, he really adds that to our game because nobody else does and nobody else really can. But actually, technically, um, you know, those, those, those kind of feet of his, we, you know, there, there are countless occasions of either him scoring or setting up goals with, with some lovely touches, yeah, um, and he's he's really kind of he's and he the goal he set up for group. Perez. Uh, yeah, exactly. The we'll same talk thing. about that, but I mean that that's a he's done that multiple times. The flick yeah, over the, yeah. the back four. 
Yeah, I remember Gibbs scoring one and mm. against Swansea exactly like that. Podolski against Montpellier, exactly mm. the same type of goal. And, um, and and I suppose that's the thing about Giroud. We we think about him primarily as this kind of big target man. But yeah. The classic English centre forward plodding forward to stick indeed. his head on it. Indeed, but technically he's 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 right up there um, with with some of the kind of like, particularly when he's when he's in decent form. Um, you know his touch and his well his left foot. I wouldn't say his feet per se, but his left foot is mm. is incredibly deft. Um, and he shows he shows it twice in that move. And yeah. um, I would be incredibly lucky if we see a better Arsenal goal than that this season. Yeah, it was superb. Um, I mean. Credit to Perez as well. He gets back, nips the interception, mm. puts it onto Bellerin's boot. I'm just looking at it here. Who knocks it forward, the quick flick. And then it's Chaka who knocks it out to Iwobi, strings it through to Alexis. Alexis does his usual almost stepping on the ball before crossing. And he puts in the perfect cross, only it's the perfect cross for once to Giroud's heel. And then clipping it on the other side, underside of the bar is a kind of the the beautiful accent on the, and I th- on the thing. I think there are there are two other interesting kind of um, subplots to this goal. First of all, Lucas Perez herring back yeah. um, a couple of days after he got his collar felt by, <laughs> by Gabriel for not tracking back. So um, maybe that, you know, Gabriel having a word in his shell like played a part yeah, in, in this being able to happen. And um, I think the other thing is as well, prior to this little spell, you know, we talked a lot about Giroud and Alexis having no kind of relationship. Mm. And in the last couple of weeks, now Alexis has been given a slightly freer role, I think. Um, and maybe he's just coming at it from a slightly different angle now. Maybe he just feels, um, you know, his shoulders are puffed out and he feels like, you know, the big player in the team. And he feels like he's got a bit more of a creative responsibility now. Those two are combining now. And, you know... yeah. In, in over these two games, Alexis has set up Giroud and Giroud has set up Alexis um, for a diving header, of all things. Yeah, o- um, off his hump, a la Quasimodo. Yeah. And again, that, that was that, that was very deliberate as well. That that was a very that was a very nice death touch. Um, yeah. He meant that. At, at the bare minimum, he was. I'm going to get my body on it to deflect it. I don't know. Not yeah. exactly sure where or what behind me, but if I put get a deflection on it. Th- I'll put it into a dangerous, dangerous area. Indeed, indeed, and and you know, I, I think um, it, you know we've scored what five goals in these two games, and and there's been a, a decent measure of inventiveness in all. I mean, except Giroud's equaliser at Bournemouth, which was a bit more meat and potatoes. But um, you know, Iwobi's header as well. I, I loved that because it was it was very inventive. It was very sharp and quick. And it was one of those things, when I saw it happen, when I watched that ball loop up in the air, at no point did I think, head that a goal. Yeah. He saw the gap, and I didn't see it. And so I was quite surprised. I think a lot of people around me were as well. Like We were surprised when it went in, because I don't think, when the ball loops up in the area like that, you kind of think, it feels like a percentage move. You know, you think, oh, just get your head on it, get it back across goal or something, or yeah. try and put the goalkeeper off. Um, you don't often get a move that deliberate on an aerial ball uh, that loops up like that. And uh, I, I was complete. I was. I just saw the ball kind of spoon up in the air, and I thought, right, someone just get on this and try and do something. And uh, when he headed it in, I I had to look at the replay before before I could decide if he meant it. 
Um, and he very, you know, he very, very clearly did. He saw the gap and he went for it, and it was a lovely header. And uh, I think in many ways, actually, it reminded me a little bit of Ozil's goal against Stoke, where he just loops the header over the goalkeeper, um, where I, I wasn't really thinking that he would do that. Um, and it was, it was a lot. And he, you know, he hit the sweet spot there um, as well. And I think he, he kind of took everyone by surprise. And that's, that's, I think a symptom of his confidence increasing. He's playing slightly better and he scored some goals recently. Yeah. Because um, we've seen him take good positions in recent weeks and not finish. Um, you know, like the Everton one that got cleared off the line. Um, you know, he had that, that kind of fairly bad miss in the Tottenham game. But, but since he scored that goal in Basel, it, it seems to have kind of um, re-energised him in front of goal. And again, I'm not even sure he'd have tried that a couple of weeks ago so you know that that again in its own right was a lovely inventive piece of play yeah I mean what struck me about it um, I mean it's different obviously there's pluses and minuses to watching it on the telly but as the ball was dropping down and he connects with it there was the, the word that came to mind at the time was intelligent he, he was really he'd worked out what he needed to do so it, it, even before I watched a replay and, and two and four it just seemed like uh, it was—he was just being really, really clever in what he did. And again, like the Giroud goal, you know, props to him—he wins that ball in midfield, uh, sprints diagonally. Just watching it here again, knocks it to uh, Alexis, who has a shot, and uh, it gets blocked. Then Alexis kind of uh, sets up monreal who puts it in. The ball pops up in the air, so it's a long drop before the ball comes down, which of course gives him mm. the the uh, the force he needs from the header, but uh, I mean, pretty cool, pretty calculating, and I thought very intelligent. So a nice goal, that uh, it, especially in a game where I think he was a bit of a star in that game. May, maybe a little bit yeah. of it was Palace giving us a little bit too much room. But mm. that said, to your point, I mean, they they had an attacking lineup. They didn't come to just sit back. They came back, came to play. Um, and they were still, you know, they were maybe a little conservative once we kind of got the run of the game. Um, but it, it seemed to me over time they got worse. I think they started reasonably well and gave us a, a reasonable level of opposition. So to me, the two goals were fairly meaningful in terms of, of uh, you know, uh, credit to the to both goal scorers, particularly the first, of course. But um, as you said, from that point on, the game kind of ground down a little bit. But mm. one of the things we don't really do very often is kind of whip around. the. T- we, we can end up talking about four or five players on a good day, sometimes two or three. Um, it does occur to me that... Um, if Elliot was seething before the podcast, <laughs> wait till he hears what we did with the Giroud section. Suck it up, you bastard. Um, so, uh, and that's before we get on to uh, Bournemouth, uh, plus and minus. But yeah. when you look around, the t- so you had Gabrielle, who I know you always have an eye on. Um, mm. You know, he, he certainly divides people. I've kind of liked him recently. Uh, I yeah, always I refer to him as the wild man. I haven't seen any wild man in, a re- in him recently, which to me is the main thing he needed to cut out. He's not a yeah. distributor, um, which um, 
you know, I see the logic for Mustafi um, from that standpoint, uh, and maybe he's more polished and he's more of a baller and he can almost play as a midfielder and often does plug in as kind of one more deep-lying midfielder. But Gabriel's done very well in his last Mm -hmm. couple of games. Did you... uh, I didn't catch why Mustafi started against Bournemouth, did you? Was it just... I think he he just thought it was the opportune time to bring him back in, really. Um, Which I think is unfair, in a way, on Gabriel. I thought the manager mentioned something about... So, uh, sorry to throw it to you and then cut you off, but um, interesting that the manager talked about one of the challenges for the Bournemouth game was the fact that he had so little time, not just from resting, but in terms of actually knowing who's fit, because you don't know the day after a game for sure. Yeah, yeah. It takes a couple of games, a couple of days to find out who you had. And I thought he mentioned a question mark over Gabriel, a question mark over Koscielny, who he started, a question mm-hmm. mark over Bellerin, uh, and maybe yeah. even over Perez. So we'll talk to that talk about that in the, when we get to the Bournemouth game but was there so you reckon it was just a, a straight choice between Mustafi versus Gabriel and he thought it was a good time to bring him back in because I to me that's yeah. a bit rough on him It is yeah but I think the way he'd have thought about it is well you know give Mustafi an extra 48 hours kind of recovery and also you know, you don't want to play player like that twice in, in that situation, twice in 48 hours, and it just makes a lot more sense, um, you know, not to put him in for one game and then take him straight out again. Mm. Um, he probably thought, well, I'll play him at Bournemouth and then probably play him at Preston to give him that extra game to get his rhythm back. And that means that, and you know, Gabriel will play against Preston as well. And his performances have merited that so far. And I, th- I think he was just slicing it like that. I do think it was fairly telling um, that he hooked Koscielny for Gabriel uh, so early, mm. um, actually, which he, ne- he never makes that change. He never, ever changes the back four unless someone is having an absolute nightmare, which Koscielny wasn't particularly. But um, he was obviously feeling something. something. and. But I, d- I don't think it was just that. I think it's also because Gabriel has played, you know, pretty well recently. He probably thought, well, a, I can probably afford to do it, and b, it's kind of, you know, a, a reward for Gabriel. It's a way of saying, well, actually, you are giving me a choice at the moment, and you are still in my thoughts, and so I'm going to give you the last 25 minutes here, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. And you know, it, it just lets everybody know that he's still thinking. Um, you know, so no nobody has like got their place guaranteed, yeah. um, as it were. And I, and I think against Palace as well. I, I I think he just it was um, it was almost like a mathematical decision. You know, it was just well, Mustafa's only just back, and we'll bring him back for Bournemouth um, when you know we'll we'll probably need his his kind of passing um, a little bit more as it was. I don't think he played very well against Bournemouth and I hope that was just um, a matter of rust um, more than anything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it was, a, it was a mixture of not wanting to rush Mustafi and overload him and he wanted to kind of reward Gabriel for his performances of late and just let those players know that he's still, he's still got some balls in the air there um, and just to foster that kind of 
that, that uh, simultaneously foster the idea of rivalry and competition, but that he will reward people if they come in and perform well. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we had El Nani Chaka uh, looked pretty good in this game, but then it did seem like uh, Palace backed off us and gave us a little bit of space. But um, it looks like our current midfield is now reduced to Chaka and Ramsey. Yeah. With yeah. Well, I mean, am I missing something? Is there anybody else? No. After that, it's either mate. It's it's the double barrels. It's either Maitland Niles or um, you start to wonder if Oxlade Chamberlain um, becomes an mm. option in that position. Which, given given that he's quite mobile, um, seizing, he might, seizing so level approaching. Uh, take off here <laughs> I mean whether he's defensively switched on enough is one thing but I mean the, the one I think one of the concerns perhaps about the idea of uh, Ramsey and Jacker is that um, neither of them is particularly sprightly you know over 10 yards or so um, whereas Chamberlain you know can get across the grass a bit more quickly and I don't just mean in terms of pure pace I mean in terms of his reaction time um, so you know may, maybe that becomes an interesting mm. um, option and if you know if we lose one of Ramsey or Jacker now then that that's that's a conversation we'll have to have is it Maitland-Niles or Oxlade-Chamberlain I mean, um, Ramsey I would never have a niggle or an injury or anything like that so <laughs> I, I, we're no, probably over worrying it um, how far um, away is where's Zellalem these days? Has, has he been on well, a bench recently? Well, he's he, yeah, he's he's at the club. The thing is, his contract is up at the end of the season, so he's almost certainly going to go. Um, there doesn't yeah. seem to be any suggestion that we're going to sign him up to a new one, or maybe he just doesn't want to sign a new one. Um, but yeah, he's he's not really been in the picture at all. And then um, there's the Jeff. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's more of a winger. Although I I think he has, he reminds me a lot of Diaby. He has very mm. Diaby-like qualities, I think. So you know maybe he becomes an option in there. But really, it looks like Maitland Niles is closer yeah. to his thinking. He's the one that gets on the bench um, in these situations. So you, you'd have to think he's a little bit closer yeah. in the manager's thoughts. And he's you know he's certainly got the style of you know, a, a passing Arsenal central midfielder, whether he has the, the stature and the experience is, mm. is another question. But, um, yeah, I, I, I like the look. Of, I've, I like, I've liked the look of Jacker and Elneny every time I've seen it, albeit um, when have we seen it? Forest in the League Cup, Bournemouth at home, Palace at home. So maybe it hasn't been, you know, stretched, given a, a thorough examination, but... I've liked it every time I've seen it so mm. far, um, but you know we're we're going to have Jack Ramsey now for the next you know for the next four weeks um, potentially if they both stay fit. So um, that's that's going to be really interesting, and I, I think particularly for Ramsey, that's that's going to be a real kind of make or break because if this partnership doesn't work, then it's just difficult to see how Ramsey gets in the team as a central midfielder because then you're looking at he doesn't really work with Coquelin maybe he works with Elneny but Elneny doesn't really seem that close to the starting 11 for for that partnership to really 
get any airspace, yeah. um, and you can't really play with Kazora unless you know you you contemplate leaving out Urzil, which obviously isn't going to happen. So you, you kind of feel like Ramsey's got to make this one work. Otherwise, it's it's just difficult. It's otherwise he's never going to escape that impression that he's a bit of a square peg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So, as you say, we got probably a month coming up where not only Chak and Ramsey have to work, but Ramsey has to stay not just fit, but even niggle-free. You know, no kind of, oh, we has to, we needed to rest him for a match because it felt a little tight or any of that stuff. So it's going to be a hell of an opportunity and a hell of a test, and our season's pretty much hanging in the balance, let, a, let alone... Yeah. Uh, so when do we play uh, our Champions League game against? Uh, February the fifteenth. Yeah. Okay, that's a ways off. Day. All right, we'll have at least one more midfield here by then. Um, so uh, I have to say I like the look of them when I see them lined up beside each other. When I see them on the pitch mm. before the ball rolls, or while the ball is somewhere else on the pitch, to me it feels like something that can and should work. And I haven't always felt that about it. But as I kind of got closer to D-Day, all right, we've seen, we've seen uh, period, you know, parts of games or a game where they played together. But to me, it looks like something that could and should work. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, if I'm going to take hopeful things out of this particular uh, run of games, there was Palace, there was the comeback at Bournemouth, there was seeing Chaka and Ramsey not terrible together mm. um, and having something to build on. How did you think they actually played in the game? Because he had most of the game. It reminds me of that Chelsea game four years ago where uh, we were at home and they beat us 2-1 and Mata was floating in free kicks into dangerous yeah. areas and Vermalen was busy giving away free kicks and they dominated our midfield but Diaby went off after 15 minutes Ramsey had been on the right wing and dropped back into midfield alongside Arteta if I remember it right and it's kind of a similar scenario with Bournemouth where he dropped into the midfield yeah um, I, th- I think he looked better once he was there yeah. I could see the logic in in starting Ramsey in that kind of um, number 10 role if you've got Giroud up front because obviously there's there's a logic to those two combining. Um, I think you should also then play Chamberlain because um, then you've got three quite direct players and you're changing your team up to suit the qualities that you have. Yeah. Um, I think Iwobi with Ramsey and Giroud that doesn't make as much sense. I think if you've got two players who benefit from quite direct football, and Alexis can can do that as well. Um, then I think you go the whole hog and put Chamberlain in as well, and and you really say right, we're going to be a, a bit more direct today. Um, but it it didn't really work um, in those first twenty minutes. I thought we just looked quite disjointed overall. I thought it was maybe one change too many um, because Iwobi when we played Iwobi in the number ten against Palace, he's. You know, obviously he's not Urzil, but he's slightly closer to Urzil. And I felt like, on one hand, you've got Giroud up front, who we haven't really been playing with this season. And despite his output in the last three games, 
it's it still forces a fairly different style on us and it has to be said over those three games despite his contribution in terms of goals and assists which has been absolutely stellar he's still been quite anonymous for large periods of all three of those games and I, I think it's just because it doesn't always fit and um most of Giroud's goals come in the last 15-20 minutes because he is more suited to when, as we saw against Bournemouth, once the game becomes a bit chaotic, um, he's much more suited to that. And, and in fairness, we gave him a strike partner for that last 20 minutes. Yeah. We went to up front and we've seen before, we saw that in the cup final, I think, when we threw Sonogo on for a bit of chaos factor. Um, and, and Giroud kind of, comes alive because the game becomes more chaotic because it becomes a bit more about getting balls in the box um, you know and we saw his, his kind of full range of qualities at that point so you know he gets the flick on for Alexis and then because he's got a strike partner he's able to flick the ball and find Lucas Perez um, but yeah I, I didn't really think Ramsey in the number 10 worked um, particularly well and I think on the first goal as well you look at it and you know people are kind of having a go at Ramsey about that goal but Iwobi is the one who's supposed to be playing on the right wing and uh, he's not even in the picture and he's the one that should be tracking back and uh, in fact if you if you freeze the picture you, you have you have to really look to find him he's basically in the kind of channel between centre forward and left wing where an attack's broken down and he just hasn't worked hard enough to come back. At the very least, what should have happened was that he should have come back into midfield and then told Ramsey to go over to the right wing. And um, Because Ramsey's kind of covering his space and if he'd have dropped out of that space to track Charlie Daniels, he'd have left a massive, massive hole in midfield. So I just don't think the communication was particularly good there in the build-up. And then it's compounded by the fact that Bellerin's beaten easily and Petacek reveals his front post like some kind of game show host mm. um, despite the fact he can't save for Toffee at that post he then decides to compound that by leaving it wide open anyway um, so it was, it was a you know it was a little bit calamitous I, I just thought there was a little bit too much that had been tinkered with from an attacking point in terms of having a completely different style of number 10 a completely different style of number nine. It won't be over on the right. It, I, I just felt it was a bit too much, um, to be honest. And it didn't really click for the first half an hour or so. And I wasn't too worried about that at the time because I thought, well, maybe it would just take some time to click. Maybe they just need 35, 40 minutes to sort it out. But, of course, we're 2-0 down yeah. by the time all of that happens. And once that happens, you know, it becomes a completely different game. Your opponents have something to hold on to, and that makes it even more difficult for you. Yeah. So, you know, the the injury to Cockland in the long term is is a bit of a shocker given our midfield options. But in the context of what ended up happening in this game, I don't think it did us too much harm. Just because was it was it two nil when he went off anyway? So, on you know, on it one was hand, two nil, yeah. Yeah, so on one hand, his his use kind of becomes reduced anyway, and the fact that it was quite early meant that Ramsey and Jacker dropped in next to each other, and they had a bit of time to get used to it. And I think as the game wore on, it got slightly better. Mm. Um, 
that said, Bournemouth were really sitting off at that point, so maybe it's not it's not the best point to judge. So I, I found it all difficult to judge, really. I think we just we didn't click up front because we made all those changes, and then we defended pretty poorly, um, which then makes it harder for the attack yeah. to really get into the game. So it, it was. It was a bit of a mess, it was. to be quite honest. I think it's very hard to give a, a judgment on the game, because if I told you, bef- if, if it was the start of the season and I described a scenario, you know, six months or whatever it is, into the season and said, we're going to play Bournemouth, they're going to get three and a half days rest, we're going to get two days rest, we're going to barely know who's fit as the game's about to kick off. Um, they're playing really well generally in the par- in the middle of the park and and going forward they've got fast attacking players, little dodgy at the back. Um, we've kind of ha- done a quick shuffle of players. You know how do how do you think the game will start? I th- think you n- none of us would be surprised if uh, Bournemouth started the hungrier, the faster, the snappier, and and with that we were still, you know it it. I would say it was pretty even till the goal. They were a yeah. little bit better. Maybe they had one yeah. chance that was maybe a little bit more dead. You know, there was the uh, check coming out uh, to to uh, make the save, the kind of the red card scenario where he got to the ball first. Yeah. Um, but generally, I mean, we were well in the game. You wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it took us a little bit longer to warm up. And then we bang, 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 basically. We've three what I think were mentally tired mistakes. Um, mm. Now, credit to Bournemouth on the first goal in particular, I thought, because uh, it really seemed like a scenario they'd come up with where they, they had the ball over on the right, they were working it well, and then they quickly swung it to their winger who was basically standing on the touchline with mm. nobody near him for like 15 yards. It was almost like they spotted that was going to be... an area to hit normally I complain about us about uh, teams targeting Nacho with with pace and this time around it was Bellerin twice Um, and to me both of the now there was more to it than Bellerin as we know but you could say the first and biggest mistake therefore was Bellerin not been switched on now you know these things happen in the quarter of a second he looks over his shoulder a little too late where and to me, there's a lot. You know, that's mental tiredness where you're just not tuned in to where people are. And then his his later situation. I mean, I haven't really seen anybody talk on this, but to me, if if it was a penalty, Chaka gave away, and it was, even if it was slightly yeah. soft, it it was a penalty. Um, shoving Bellerin in the back when he's on the ball. Yeah. How yeah. is, you know what's what's the difference? I w- I would have said that was the bigger offence, but you know. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that, that's um that's a point I made to to my friend at the time. But you know about the jacket penalty as well. It's like eh, it's soft. It probably is, and we seem to be getting a lot of those at the moment, where the Arsenal penalty area is treated with the utmost um, strictness and mm. the absolute letter of the law is upheld. And then when you consider, you know, the winning goal against West Brom, what's happening to Giroud? And I don't think any of us are under the illusion that had Giroud not scored there, we'd have got a penalty. We wouldn't. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit frustrating because a lot of these penalties we've, we've conceded recently 
you know, none of them are absolutely outrageous, you know. Yeah. But they're all a bit soft and kind of cumulatively you get four or five like that yeah you get four or five like that and you think well usually i'd expect that to be given like 50 percent of the time but at the moment it seems to be a hundred percent of the time but do i really have a right to be upset about that because it it probably still is a penalty it's just it's hard not to feel self-piteous and perhaps a bit whiny about it yeah um but i really really don't feel like we're getting those calls at the other end either um maybe we were earlier in the season we did have a spout of uh, a spate rather of, of penalties earlier in the season i can't remember any of them being particularly soft yeah. um so yeah it's, it's difficult not to feel hard done by and, and you're right i think ordinarily um i think if if the fan base was feeling a little bit more generous about the team and the performance they might have said if 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 it was a tight game and that put us one nil down with ten minutes to go, I think people would be saying, you know, that should have been a foul. The referees, you know, messed it up there. Yeah. Um, but when you go three nil down, yeah. and you know the supporters start chanting, "This is embarrassing" and stuff like that, then yeah. you know people aren't feeling as right with the world. They, they, basically, they don't want to defend their players as much. So I'm I'm with you. I think um, I think I'm, I'm not outraged as such by the decision not to give the free kick because it, it was you know it was just a bit of a shove it wasn't an absolute but like you said when compared to it was exactly what Jacker did basically and the referee in very similar part of the pitch referee had similar view of both of them so it, it did seem it just seems like one of those things I suppose you, you get it when you're the home team and you don't get it when you're the away team yeah it just seemed to be one and you know it, you can cr- certainly criticize Bellerin because, again, he was kind of soft on that. Had he been mm. a much more aggressive, uh, you know... Um, Had he not played 48 hours earlier? Yeah, <laughs> that's, it, that's basically it. I mean, Three or four days, he might have been feeling a bit stronger. Yeah, so there, there. You, there you suddenly are, three goals down, but that wasn't the measure of the difference between the teams. Maybe at halftime they should have been a goal up. And, yeah, yeah, and then you see what you see in the second half, whatever, whatever might transpire. So, I definitely think we were unlucky. Yeah, I do. I I had a conversation at half time with um with a friend of mine as well, and I said that that's kind of what I said that uh, Bournemouth should probably be one goal ahead. But even that, if this was nil nil at half time, nobody would be calling it a miscarriage of justice. And I yeah. said to him. I still think we can win this because <laughs> I don't think I you honestly I was like. <laughs> I, I said like I still fancy this might be a draw and I think if we get it level in good enough time I think I still think we can win this because I don't think Bournemouth are suited to sitting back um, as it proved the problem is we concede the third goal and I definitely wasn't talking like that when the third goal went in but at half time I, you know, I was saying I still think this is probably going to be a draw but we could win this mm. if, we're, if we're a bit if we're a if we're as fortunate in the second half as they've been in the first, I thought we'd win it. Um, they they never struck me as being particularly solid. I thought if we get one goal and we get it in at a good time, I think we can shake them, um, which which we did in yeah. the end. But that makes that third goal all the more annoying because we could, you know, we if, if we'd have kept it at two nil, we could have won that. We could have won that 
not convincingly, but I think it was very much on. Yeah, for me, the most important, uh, sorry, the most disappointing part of the whole game was the twenty minutes after halftime. Because yeah, uh, I, I can forgive us for being, you know, maybe a little bit off the pace in the first half, maybe almost as good as Bournemouth, but not better. You want you want them to come back, come out in the second half, and really show what they can do. And it didn't seem like till we made the Perez swap. Yeah, that that ain't, and maybe it was just things weren't clicking and going more direct and getting in among them and the little bit of extra sizzle that Perez gave. Uh, was that your perspective on Perez? It seemed to be a lot of people kind of saw. Perez being a game changer. I mean, he clearly yeah. was materially in terms of a number of key plays. But he did seem to bring... That's the player I thought we were signing. Yeah, um, yeah, from, yeah. From my little bit of research and our various conversations beforehand. And I've seen little elements of that in each of his comebacks now. Uh, the, yeah. the first few runs of games, and, and then he's had two or three kind of games and, uh, and a start. But but you could see he wasn't clicked in and connected and kind of the passes going awry. But you could see the things that made him look dangerous. And we kind of talked about him as being one of our wing options or a, a forward option. But in a way, we don't really have a player like him. We have players who have two-thirds of what he has. Yeah. You know, uh, Oxley chamberlain can run at players. He's quick. Now, it's somewhat different skill set. But... Perez has always seemed to me to be a guy who would bang in goals in the right positions. And I'm not talking about mm. his tap-ins and his hat trick. Just mostly, I guess, from, from what I remember of the games I've looked up and, and highlights and stuff and how people talk about him. And he was pretty ruthless in his 20 minutes on. Yeah, definitely. He, he does remind me, not so much in his... Um, you know his gait or his style or anything, but he reminds me a bit of Walcott in terms of yeah. Um, he doesn't. He might only have fifteen touches of the ball in a game, but one of them there's a good chance one of them is going to be a goal or an assist. And I think the thing is with Lucas and this this scenario suited him actually because again the game was a bit chaotic, but his movement in the box is very very good, particularly in that little avenue between the full-back and the centre-half in those channels. Yeah. Um, and actually, what, what, I, I think... The other point, I, I think you, you you alluded to it, but his runs are very mm. Walcott-esque as well. You know, he does those clever diagonals that... Because they both do two things. I guess they have three things in common. They're fast, they know where the corners of the net are, and yeah. they make those clever short runs that put defences into trouble. Yeah, in that... That, that little court, you know, that the place that Theo loves the most yeah, between the channel, fullback yeah. and the centre half, and that's that's exactly where, um, if you look at Lucas Perez's contributions so far, that's where most of them are coming in that just that little bit of space, and uh, and I suppose actually it's it's slightly Vardy esque as well, um, yeah. hitting those channels like that, albeit he has to be a bit cleverer because there's a little less space, but he is quite clever yeah. with it, I think. Um, and, you know, he, he read that. It's, it's a lovely setup by Giroud, but he reads it as well. He sees it straight away, and, and obviously on his left foot, he, he hits it absolutely All beautifully. Business. It's a wonderful goal. 
Um, but I, yeah, I thought he was a total game changer. And you know, in hindsight, if we'd have made, I get, I stress in hindsight because I wasn't screaming for it at half time. But in hindsight, if we'd have made that sub at half time, we might have won. Yeah. Um, that's how much of a game changer I think it was, and it helped Giroud out. It just gave him an extra body in there. And I even think when you look at Giroud's equaliser, you know, Perez is right in there. And yep. it's basically it's an extra player for them to worry about. Otherwise, they'd have just had three centre-halves, you know, two of them holding Giroud and the other one, like, jumping on his face or something. But he, he just put an extra body and an extra little piece of doubt, and it just makes... It, it gave Giroud a bit of breathing space. Um, and I think it, it hugely benefited him. And like I say, a player who benefits from those chaotic periods of the game anyway, it just gave him a little bit more room to do to do what he's good at. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I, I thought and um, the opinion around me in the stadium, bearing in mind where the away fans are stationed at Bournemouth, it's... Um, next to the goal we were attacking on the left-hand side. So we all had a very, very good view of what Lucas Perez was doing um, because he was right in front of us. And, and the vast consensus was that it was him that changed the game. Um, you know, as, as much as Giroud's contributions were obviously the clutch ones, that it was him who actually changed, who swung the game in our favour. Yeah, I mean, part of the challenge sometimes is with... Giroud as our only target man you know there's only so much he can do and the center backs kind of can get into Greco Roman wrestling with them and tie him up and you find you've one guy in the box occasionally Sanchez will come in and leap like a salmon but but mostly Mm. you're kind of somehow Giroud isn't enough he probably is in the last five or ten minutes but while you're still being somewhat cultured in your build-up play Whereas with somebody like uh, Perez, um, now you got uh, two bites of the sandwich. And the other beautiful thing that comes with Perez that we didn't really see in this game is he does seem to have the knack for putting that ball across the six-yard box. Mm. Um, and maybe Giroud will warm up to that. I think you alluded to something earlier as well in terms of my hope now that Giroud is back and getting some starts, much to uh, Elliot's chagrin here, um, is I had hoped, and I think I said this on one of the pods, that maybe he and Alexis will establish a new balance. Because in theory, they should be able to play together. Giroud, even if he's having a quiet game, should be able to punch holes in the middle of that defense and drag centre-backs backs to one side or the other. Um, creating the holes for Alexis to go through, and they've never quite lined it up for whatever reason. I mean, we talk about Giroud blocking the middle, but that shouldn't be what's happening. It should be that he's having enough impact on one or two centre-backs that he's creating holes by, by force of will, by his you know, grappling, wrestling, all of those things we've seen before that have led to frustration. And to your point that Alexis has kind of decided he's the man and is more assertive in his uh, attacking into the box, more as a kind of a second forward, more as the maybe even as the role that uh, Perez played uh, on a more frequent occasion. But whatever it is, there, there's a balance to be found 
between the two of them that they too often haven't in the past. Or maybe Giroud just gets tired too often and isn't suited to a long run of games. And that's what Mm. we're seeing at the moment. Not that we're playing beautiful football, but maybe you don't put it all down to Giroud that we're not playing beautiful football at the moment. I mean, there Mm. are other things going on with our midfield and changes to be made. Um, So, and the nature of the games, you know, the, the City game is a whole different animal to the games we played earlier in the season. So, I know Elliot never wants to see Giroud starting up front. Um, but he, I guess here's my pitch for optimism. Um, you know, for a terrible, terrible forward, Giroud's doing fairly amazing things in each game, uh, even if we're not playing brilliantly yet. Maybe Chak and Ramsey can find the groove, and maybe Ramsey can, can stay healthy. Uh, looks like we've got some pretty good defensive options. Uh, with Perez kicking in now, we have plenty of attacking options. Welbeck just around the corner. Um, you know, points-wise, this was a missed opportunity against Bournemouth. And I think we were all pretty... Uh, I would guess we were all pretty de- depressed after the Bournemouth mm. game. But give me a day and a half and somehow my brain starts getting addled and I start thinking, hang on. You know, we're still in this thing. But this top top six battle for the top four places just for starters is getting juicy. Yeah. Um, we are, what, three points off second. Uh, maybe somebody has cracked the code. God bless them. Spurs. I always back them. Uh, maybe they've they've found the way to, to stir the, the uh, turnover the apple cart with Chelsea. Found a way to get at them. And that teams will be more aggressive instead of standing off and assuming that they're going to get clattered by Chelsea if, if they go at them. I mean, I know we're supposed to be depressed after the Bournemouth game, and I certainly was. I know uh, Elliot is currently chewing his arm off. But is there a more optimistic scenario than we've blown it? Which is how we probably all felt at the end of yeah. the Bournemouth game. I mean, and we've also got to say, what a fucking comeback up to the point of getting level. yeah. yeah. There, there is an optimistic scenario, and I, I think none of the teams up there are infallible, and I don't think for one minute that we don't have the ability or the talent to, to, you know, really have a say in this title race still. And, you know, overall Chelsea, I, I think we've got a good enough team and good enough players to do it. I think the problem becomes, do we really think in our heart of hearts that Arsenal actually will, though? And... It's difficult not to feel a little bit jaded. It's difficult not to feel that actually the last couple of years we have underperformed. I I think, honestly, we have the best squad in the league. And and I know it's very, very tight up there, but I don't know. I I just feel like if you're talking about being the champions and winning the league, I think you need to know pretty much what not the 11 you play every single week but I think you know what your best team is in your heart of hearts I think pretty much every team that ends up winning the league will have a fullback if everyone's fit this is the 11 I'm going with um, you know and that might change you know according to circumstances or according to different games you might do something different but you know 
Um, I'm playing a game, you know, my life is on the line. This is the 11 I'm going with. And I don't think Arsenal has that. No. And actually, I we've we've made reference to this before. I think Wenger operates better when he has less choice, mm. um, which, which actually does make me, you know... Um, think slightly more generously about the Jacko Ramsey thing. He's obviously been very, very reluctant to use it, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to know why. But now he's got no choice, so he has to work on it. And actually, I think that's when you get the best out of Arson when, um, when he doesn't have too much choice and his brain doesn't wander too much. And you know, something I've read about um, him as a, as a personality many, 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 many times. Um, like a fascinating insight into what he's like as a person is that he's a bit of a daydreamer um, and that actually he's not hugely uh, observational like there are loads of funny stories about him like dropping his dinner in the canteen and not noticing and walking over to his seat and then you know seeing that his plate's empty and things like that and and um, I can relate to that <laughs> and, um, and what happens I think sometimes is when you have too much choice you put too much thought into it and you tie yourself in knots and I just wonder if he's a little bit like that I also without wishing to sound too down on him I think we're in an era now where there are some coaches that really really add value to their teams that are like a 12th man and I, I don't think Arsene really does that anymore um well, I'm, I'm not sure he ever did really because he has that kind of laissez-faire approach. I mean, his that said, his bench has bailed him out on many occasions this season, but I'm not sure that that's any kind of tactical mastery. I just kind of feel like it's a bit, oh, shit, we need a goal. I'm just going to throw my forwards on, which he's always done to a degree. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a good thing to do, but, you know, it, it doesn't feel like there's basically I suppose what I'm getting at is it doesn't feel like there's a plan you know and I, I just think we're in an era at the moment where you've got these like obsessive super coaches that are so meticulous and 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 that's what it is at the top now and I just wonder whether Arsons, um, let them figure it out for themselves and if they haven't by the 74th minute I'll just throw all the strikers on I'm, I'm not sure that wins you the league yeah. um, at the moment yeah. and and I still prefer us with Alexis up front yeah. I have to say um, I prefer that because, <clears throat> because if it's not working on 70 minutes I think you then can throw Giroud on and go for the chaos factor I don't think that works in reverse I don't think once you start Giroud, it's very difficult to take him off if you need a goal. Um, and so you end up playing him and playing him. And most of his effectiveness tends to be late in the games anyway. So I, I still think he should... Like, I, I, I think you're right in terms of Alexis and Giroud are, are working on things. But I think what's happening really is we're minimising a, a kind of an issue that Giroud's presence gives us. And the best way of minimising that issue is for him to be on the bench. And, and that's super harsh because of his contribution. But I, I still just think we function. I, I still think it just functions better in reverse. You know, you start Alexis up front. I think we have a lot more players that are capable of scoring goals then. And we share them around and we're a bit more varied. 
and if on 70 minutes it's not working then you you know you break the emergency glass and um i think we look better like that um so i i don't know that there are some causes for optimism i'm very curious about the jacker ramsey midfield because i've not really been that happy with any of our central midfield combinations and this is the only one we haven't tried so the potential there's there's a potential huge upside there um it could be a downside as well but it it's at least exciting and interesting to see but the rest of it i don't know it, it just kind of feels yeah. like arsenal will be a little bit short of that extra something yeah um again and whether that extra something is mental whether it's tactical um i don't know and i think you know i think that's maybe why arsenal fans are more prepared to read stuff into things like olivier giroud <laughs> going yeah. going for a celebratory dance about a goal he scored two days ago when there's still five minutes of stoppage time left and the opposition are down to 10 men and we've really got the momentum we really got them on the rack and we really have to win yeah. and i understand why people think it's a small thing um and in many respects it is and ultimately it, it didn't matter it didn't really have any effect but i think arsenal sometimes invite that they invite that kind of sense of you know do you really have that that extra 0.5% to really go on and win the league and again that's that's that on Giroud personally that is spectacularly harsh but those are the, those are you know we're, we're talking about kind of fine margins here. So you know, uh, sorry, it, it's, you're raising great points. The two that resonate the most is uh, midfield and attack, and the fact that we at this stage Arsenal should know who they are, mm. and in midfield we have one option that better work for the next month. <laughs> but even beyond that, we're not sure what the best option is. Uh, in 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 the forward line, we have an embarrassment of riches, but it's absolutely unclear. We might be able to decide what our front three is. It's absolutely yeah, unclear yeah. what Arson might go with. And to be fair, there were reasons why Giroud started a couple of games recently, and I think valid yeah, reasons. Definitely. definitely. But, but I think we have a sneaking suspicion it might be hard to get him out of that starting spot. And... You know, you you know what it is you want to see when you see it, and and the best we've looked is with Sanchez up front. So that's the question: what will we go back to? Anyway, indeed, we better uh, wrap it up at this point. Uh, it was a hell of a comeback. Like you say, we had five minutes to do a little bit more with it, but I think we were probably shattered. But, yeah. Uh, so close. Hell of an effort in the second half for a team that was clearly had good reason to be shattered. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think, think people um, used it as justification for the idea that we weren't actually tired, and to me that's bollocks. They just, they just dug yeah. and dug and dug. And also, I think maybe we underestimate because you know we we think well we do go through it and we feel the kind of roller coaster and all of that. But when you get it back to three three, and I know what my my reaction at the time when Drew came over, I was not I wasn't furious. Don't get me wrong, but I was just going get back to the fucking center circle. He was probably but, looking at 1,500 people confusing the hell out of them with yeah, all of them, down, yeah. giving them the finger. And But, but 
you know, we're, we probably underestimate the physical side of it and how that transforms the mental side. So when you're the one that's like busted your ass to yeah. do that and then you, you do it, um, you, my, my preference would be for him to fish the ball out of the net and put it on the centre spot. But I think maybe we can't relate because when you're absolutely knackered and you've put everything into that, and you know Giroud set the two goals up before that as well, there must be a part of you that just, even subconsciously, just breathes out a little bit and goes, fucking hell, that was, you know, that was was close. um, And we've had so many almost comebacks, you know, I'm always bitching about that one, the almost comeback, the almost glorious return. Um, Now maybe... The definition of that in this game was a win, but we did it. When we got the first goal and then the second goal, I'm like, this is normally the bit where we just tail off. We just run out of gas. And, yeah. you know, they got that extra goal, and then you're thinking, hang on, we can win this. But um, uh, maybe we just underestimate. You know, Giroud probably didn't even know he was over on the sideline celebrating. He was in yeah, some other yeah, yeah. fucking world. You know, he's like, what are my legs, what am I doing over here? How am I doing that bloody celebration I'd planned before the game, but not under these circumstances? He probably had no fucking idea what he was doing. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, Indeed. Fair points on all sides. But at this stage, let's wrap it up, because I think we've all got to get to bed and do stuff. And I must have some kind of a life waiting for me. Plus, uh, if we say anything else, Elliot will through chew off his first second arm and through his leg at the easy ride Giroud's gotten today but anyway <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear his dulcet tones over the weekend so we got uh, Preston North End glamour tie at the weekend excited about that one? Yeah absolutely I've, I've never been there before so that's always what oh, you well. want in the FA Cup third round. Yeah superb right well we won't uh, we won't discuss all the fixtures and lineups. Who who the hell knows but uh We'll see what we see. So, so, anyway, great. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for uh, for carrying the load today. And appreciate everybody listening in. We'll have Elliot back next time round. And that's it for the Arsenal Vision podcast. Thank you.